You're listening to the Healthcare Innovators Podcast. Today I'm on site at the Oshner Health System with today's guest, Dr. Richard Milani. Dr. Milani is the Chief Clinical Transformation Officer and Vice Chairman of the Department of Cardiology at Oshner. He has a deep background in population health with a special interest in chronic disease and medical informatics with extensive medical education background from the University of Florida and Harvard, along with his lengthy work at Oshner. He's recently written and will soon publish a book called Death and Dollars, Solving the Epidemic of Chronic Disease. We're going to be talking a bit more about his book and where you can buy it, but right now we'll jump into the discussion about patient satisfaction and how healthcare vendors can work more closely with hospital systems to achieve the desired results. Welcome, Dr. Milani, and thank you so much for taking time out from your schedule to share your thoughts. Thanks. It's great to be here. First question for you, Dr. Milani. Uh, we have a mixed audiences, audience of tech people and clinicians uh, at the Datica podcast series. Uh, my first question is, uh, describe what clinical transformation is um, and what a chief uh, clinical transformation officer does. The healthcare, just in general, is going through its, its greatest transformation probably since uh, Hippocrates. Um, and uh, most healthcare systems are embedded uh, in sort of a standard way of doing business. Um, and we realize and recognize that we have to transform ourselves in order to be more cost effective um, and achieve better quality outcomes, um, not only across the US, but across the world. So many large health systems now have created uh, positions uh, entitled transformation officers. And in fact, their sole purpose is to be able to ready health systems uh, for the needed transformation that's coming. Do you think that we're there yet? Do you think that we're close? Or do you think it's a goal that we'll never reach perfection on? Uh, you know, where are we at and what's the current state of clinical transformation? Well, it's, 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 it's not a one and done thing. So transformation is something that, uh, you know, you're moving uh, like, you know, a big ship. Uh, it's not going to happen in a day. Uh, it takes time to, to change. Um, are we moving? Yes. Are, are we where we need to be yet? Of course not. Uh, but and I think some health systems are moving at a faster rate than others, uh, but uh, there's still a good ways to go. What do you think uh, differentiates the hospital systems that are moving faster on clinical transformation versus ones that are lagging behind? Is it personnel? Is it process? Is it just needing to measure things that organizations are already doing? What do you think that differentiator is? I, I think the biggest differentiator is incentive. Uh, and generally what drives incentive in, in our economy is where the dollars flow. So um, there's a movement in healthcare that's been called volume to value. And, and what that means is the payment model is changing. So before uh, we were in a pure volume strategy. So for every transaction, every visit we had, we got paid a certain sum of money. And let's just make this up and assume that uh, those visits uh, were not high quality for some reason, or they didn't achieve the desired outcomes, uh, there was no financial penalty for that. I mean, you just saw more patients faster or, or, or a greater volume, and you'd, you'd do better financially. The shift today, which I think is a good shift, is now to say, you know, we're going to pay you based on quality, based on value that you provide to the, the patients that you serve. And so if you're doing a better job, you'll get paid better than if you did a poor job. And, and that means really changing how you deliver care. 
So the systems that are further along on this value proposition are the ones that are the most interested in transforming themselves, whereas, the, whereas those systems that are sort of happy to be in the old model um, have no incentive to want to transform themselves. But clearly the direction that the world and the, the United States is going is towards this value-based care. I think it's the best thing that could happen for, for people. Because at the end of the day, what you want as an individual is to see a physician or a, go to a hospital that's going to deliver high value, high quality, safe care in the most efficient way possible for you. So you can get whatever you need done and get out safely um, and not have problems that occur or repeat hospitalizations for, for, for whatever procedure you might have had. Great. Uh, moving on, you recently were a panelist at a healthcare conference in Washington, D.C., where you gave your thoughts on the opportunities and obstacles in developing strong patient experience models. Can you share the most important ideas that came out of that panel? Well, I think there's a couple. Number one is first recognizing that uh, patient experience matters. Uh, today, we live in a world where uh, most people, at least on commercial health plans or commercial uh, insurance, have high deductible insurance, which means there's a lot of out-of-pocket. And as a result of that out-of-pocket, people are being sensitive to what we would consider a consumer-based strategy. You know, I don't, that's too much money, or that's not, uh, you made me wait too long, or, you know, this was not, they didn't treat me well. Uh, and those are important considerations that we should have been paying attention to all along. So I think the first recognition out of this conference was the, the importance of knowing your customer. And I don't think that Health systems in general across the U.S. have have spent time learning um, what patients want and and looking at patients as consumers of healthcare as opposed to just recipients of healthcare. And so I think that that the biggest single thing that came out of it was the recognition that that's important. Um, and and secondly, methods by which we need to start asking questions of our patients to understand what their real wants and desires are. And when you're talking about improving the patient experience and, you know, improving transformation and delivering innovation, what do you think some of your largest constraints are on delivering those new innovations and transformations? Um, I think in general, for any health system, the biggest constraints are always going to be culture, you know, because what we're looking for is change and, and significant change. And it doesn't matter what industry one's in, um, you know, People are used to going to work, doing their job the way they've been doing it, and now we're moving things around differently. Um, and, and that movement is often for the good, uh, but sometimes movement is, is difficult, whether it's a nurse or a doctor or a, any other kind of healthcare worker. So there, for some individuals, there may be some resistance to want to change. Uh, I think in general, though, uh, physicians are ready for change and nurses are ready for change. And so we have to appeal to what's best for uh, our customers. And in this case, of course, our patients are our customers and, and that generally helps things along. But typically th the greatest difficulty you'll have is, is um, culture and moving culture around. And one of the things, you know, when I think of culture, maybe I come from the tech EMR space has been the increased uh, entry of computers uh, and tech into what we do in the healthcare uh, industry and what we do when we work with patients. Um, obviously, tech helps somewhat in the, transform in the process of transformation because it allows us to measure some things better, uh, but also has some of those cultural rubbing points that you can think of uh, that you mentioned you know, that are required in order to uh, incentivize change. 
when you're working on ideas that involve tech at Oshner, does Oshner interact uh, with the internal IT or from a transformation impact, do you operate independently? Yeah, so the answer is both. Um, we have our own full-time people in our innovation center that are tech uh, and their full-time job is whatever it might be, redesigning portions of our electronic medical record, uh, building interfaces with, you know, outside vendors, uh, you know, any, any num numerous forms of technology and technology and healthcare change. Uh, but obviously, none of this can be done in pure isolation. So we have to often work with the um, with our IT group, and they're very important, and they're good collaborators in allowing us to do things that we do. So we're we're independent, but we're close uh, in terms of not interfering with the day to day job that they have to perform, which is keep the, the really the trains running on time. You know, they they need to make sure that our EMR is up to date, operational, safe, effective, secure. Um, and those are critically important functions. So we work side by side with them. And when you think of, you know, companies or vendors or people who have helped you with clinical transformation, can you think of common threads with the ones that help you be most successful and help systems like Oshner be most successful? Well, let me tell you what doesn't work first, because then what, the, what's, what, what does work is easy. And what doesn't work is if a vendor is just purely trying to sell their product and they're not interested ultimately in, in making this frictionless. Um, so I'll give you an example. Uh, a vendor will come along and say, I've got the greatest thing in the world. It'll tell you X, Y, Z. All you have to do is log into our site and you can see whatever it is you want to see. And our response to that is maybe this is a great idea, but we're not going to log into your site and see whatever we want to see uh, because then we'll be logging into 250 sites a day um, you know, to try and find the one thing, that piece of information, and it'll take us an army of people to collect all the information we need to in thousands and thousands of patients. What we need to do is you need to open up your API, allow us to ping the information, bring it back into the EMR, and so we have all the information residing in front of us so that we can make critical decisions. Um, and also, if we have the data discreetly, we can sort of categorize the data in any shape or form that we wish to. So the vendors that work well with us are those that are saying, makes a lot of sense, Let's make the patient and the delivery system first. Uh, if, if we can float the boats, we'll win too. And so, you know, it's a win-win deal. Whereas those that are saying, oh, no, 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 you have to, you know, do it this way, uh, then those don't tend to work out so well and we don't use those. It's interesting you bring up that interoperability and how that makes vendors succeed. Uh, part of the reason I'm here in New Orleans is that tomorrow is the Partners and in Interoperability Summit uh, hosted by HL7. Um, for those listening more familiar with HL7, it's the standards body for health state internationally. Uh, but the Partners in Interoperability Summit comprises of people from pharma life sciences, payers, health systems, and vendors coming together on interoperability. And to me, it's been really inspiring, I feel, uh, 10 years ago to get everybody together in the same room to talk about interoperability would have been a pipe dream. I don't think you had any real innovation since HL7 V2 in 1989. Right. Um, are you seeing the benefits of that? Are you seeing the camaraderie, you know, coming to your hospital where all of these forces are starting to work together more closely? Absolutely. Um, and, and you're 100% right. This only works well if we can share information appropriately. And, and of course, the key word for that is, as you pointed out, interoperability. So I, I see vendors and systems coming together much more collegially than in the past. Um, and clearly, a lot of the work that we've done has demonstrated that the real significant impact of interoperability. 
So having the information in one location where we can now categorize and do all kinds of things with that information to be able to interact with the patient at the right moment, at the right time, in the right place is critical for us. Um, and we can now provide alerts. We could do all kinds of things that we couldn't do any other way. So interoperability is the key, I think, to creating the next level of efficiency in healthcare. What are you most focused on to increase speed of delivery for transformation ideas at Oshner? What do you think can really move the needle? Oh my gosh, there's 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 lots of things. Uh, you know, healthcare is such a big and complicated industry. There's so many ways that we can create efficiencies, create safety, improve quality, reduce costs um, through a variety of methods. So our mantra has always been uh, what is now the quadruple aim. Uh, and, and anything that we do uh, from an innovation perspective tries to target at least one, if not all of the principles of the quadruple aim, which is namely improving the health of the population, improving the quality of the care that we provide, reducing the cost of care um, for our population. And finally, the fourth aim is now, how can we do this while improving uh, the workload on the providers of care? Um, now that may be a lot to chew on, but really that's really where our true north is. And so in any of the things that we do, we try to make sure that we're enabling at least one, if not more than one of those pillars and there's so many opportunities in healthcare. It's certainly a rich sea of opportunity in terms of where we can do this, both on the hospital side as well as the outpatient side. Can you talk about one initiative that you've worked on recently here at Oshner that you've delivered on and how you've measured some of that success? Yeah, I mean, I can think of many, but I'll give you an example. Um, you know, where is the greatest cost of care in the United States? And it exists with chronic disease. So that's 86% of all the dollars we spend as a nation in healthcare. So that's about 2.75 trillion just for chronic disease alone. Secondly, we, we operate in a very inefficient model. Uh, so we see people in the office, we measure whatever it is we're measuring about some biologic information about your blood pressure, or your heart failure, or your COPD. And then you go out into the into the world and we see you back in six months or something. And then in between, things are changing all the time and we have no knowledge about what's changing. So we launched a, a digital medicine program in hypertension uh, about two years ago. We just recently launched one in diabetes. Uh, we collect the information either passively or semi-passively directly from home. We interact. We can pivot directly. We can see when things are getting out of control before they get out of control. And we can make adjustments on the fly. So we initially enrolled several hundred people with out-of-control hypertension for more than a year, and we had them in control uh, within 90 days in over 71% of the patients that enrolled. And clearly, after 90 days, it gets higher and higher. It doesn't stop at 90 days, but to, but to show you, we're much more effective at controlling chronic disease digitally than we are in a face-to-face, -face, every three- to six-month model that is the way we do chronic care today across the U.S., so we've created a digital platform. We now have thousands of people enrolled. Uh, it's a much better experience. It's much better quality of care. It's at a lower cost, and it's also reducing the, the burden on the provider. So it really hits us. a great example of hitting on all four pillars of the quadruple aim. That's amazing. And you, know, you mentioned that you were able to gather a cohort of uh, 600, 700 patients for those uh, studies. That Was that right? How did you get patients onboarded? Uh, for those studies, were there incentives? Was it just people looking out to improve their health? Some combination of the two? No, we went to doctors and we said, listen, we have a new model of care. Um, and 
this is a way that we can monitor this and intervene on this. And we're going to follow the current guidelines. We'll change medicines as we need to based on the current guidelines. We'll offer them uh, lifestyle support in terms of changing their behaviors, education. We'll work on health literacy. We'll do all the things that are hard to do in a 15-minute office visit. And we'll do this all for you. You're interested? And of course, most of the physicians in our system says, oh my gosh, yes. And then uh, all you have to do is put in one, a one-click order. And, and then explain to the patients what's going to happen. And then we contact them and carry the ball from there. Um, so it, we, we, we launched the project in a, in a small number, with a small number of doctors initially in order to be able to develop this initial cohort. Uh, and from there, it's now been successfully launched across our entire healthcare system. Wow, that's really impressive. And where are you thinking of taking that next? Is it extensible enough that you could extend it to other disease stage, other patient cohorts? We've just launched diabetes care much the same way. Again, think about it. Chronic diseases are diseases that you're likely to have the rest of your life. They, they change. The control for those diseases aren't locked in. They change daily or weekly. But yet we sample you two or three times a year. We're collecting, as an example, blood pressure data three to five times a week, much less two or three times in a year. So with that rich amount of data, we're able to make all kinds of adjustments as needed, provide education and so on and so forth, adjust lifestyle and even medications as needed. So we've now launched diabetes much the same way. Uh, that's live today and, and doing very, very well. And uh, next year we'll be launching COPD and then following that asthma. So we have you know multiple chronic diseases on the docket. And then of course, if somebody, God forbid, has two or three chronic diseases at the same time, it creates super efficiencies because now you'll have the same point of contact for multiple things where we can make multiple adjustments. Uh, and it's all real time in your house. So the point is, is that the, the reason patients love it so much is they don't have to get in their car, make an appointment, wait in the waiting room and see their physician. They can have all this uh, impacting directly in their home real time. Speaking about diabetes care, you recently joined the clinical advisory board at Chicago startup Livongo, uh, who has a focus on uh, diabetes prevention and care. Uh, what was it about Lavanga's mission that was interesting for you that convinced you to join uh, the advisory board? Well, there, based on just what I told you, we were already uh, well into the hypertension uh, program at, in this digital medicine format that I discussed with you. And again, recognize this is all virtual. Um, when Lavongo came along and was interested in diabetes and, and they were looking for my help based on my experience in hypertension to be able to guide them somewhat in their diabetes care uh, program. So what, what interested me was here's a, here's a company that, that was, was interested in building platforms much the same way that we've built ours and uh, that made for common interests. Got it. And we talked to, you know, at Datica, we talked to a lot of startups and we talked to a lot of clinicians who are constantly being asked by startups, you know, hey, we need your help. It would be great if you would advise us or if you take a look to see if this is clinically accurate or if you would do some kind of a pilot uh, to test the validity of this. Um, what are some good ideas for clinicians and informaticists working with startups? What are some good ways they can vet them and determine the best ways to spend their time? Well, clearly, um, for any startup in the healthcare sector, you know, it's going to be difficult for you to be able to sell whatever product you have unless you have some real world data um, and some outcomes based on that real world, world data. So I think it would be very important for any of these small startups to be able to develop relationships with delivery systems to say, 
we've got this idea. Uh, do you think this has legs? Um, um, not only to test it out, but also to get advice and feedback. So we provide counsel to a lot of small startups and sometimes the way they imagine healthcare delivery to be is somewhat different than what it really is. And so uh, to be able to have physician acceptance and so on and so forth for this to be usable in an operations of working with patients every day, they really need to have advice from people that are just not trained in medicine, but trained in healthcare. And there's a difference. So I've noticed in a lot of startups, for instance, you might have a physician or a medical informaticist that's never practiced. They might've gone to med school, never done you know, any kind of training, or if they did training, they've never actually been out in the real world practicing. And, and I divide that into knowledge about medicine, which is important, uh, separate from knowledge about healthcare and healthcare delivery. Um, and so sometimes what might be a good idea from a medical perspective doesn't fit well into any kind of healthcare delivery workflow that people will accept. And so it really takes two parts for this to be a successful operation. So my advice would be to make sure that you've got advisors that are on the healthcare delivery side, uh, one, to give you advice on the front end before you engineer things too far out. And number two is to be able to have some assistance when it's time to be able to try the product out into a real world setting and collect data. It's interesting. You, know, you mentioned some of those things were will work in your real workflow. And I can remember... You know, about five years ago, I went to a conference for the Association for Clinicians for the Underserved. Uh, and at the time, I remember there were a lot of companies that were trying to build uh, what they would call the FICO score for health, right? You know, we're going to pump all this data into this algorithm. We're going to tell you whose patients are, your, which page, which of your right. patients are sick. And you'd pitch this to doctors working in the safety, and then they'd tell you, like, kind of already know. Like, we right. might not know specifically. We might not know how to target them for interventions. We might not necessarily know when things are going to get worse. But, like you know, for $5 or for four questions we would potentially ask during intake at the beginning of a visit, right. we could probably replace the million dollar algorithm, come back with that. And it always makes me think that, you know, some of the clinicians know these things. How can you uh, better incentivize them or better inspire them to work on some of these transformations? And how do you do uh, internal startups or allow uh, clinicians in their clinics or in their offices uh, contribute to transformation at Oshner? Um, well, there's no shortage of good ideas. And, uh, you know, we we employ about 1,200 plus uh, physicians, and then we have another few thousand that work in our hospitals. So uh, with that comes a, a lot of problem points, as well as a lot of good ideas on how to solve them. So uh, part of being in transformation is listening, and listening to where the pain points are, and listening to uh, physicians in terms of, you know, the, the issues they're having in their day-to-day -day lives and also possible solutions. And then, of course, you can see if any of these things are something that you can pull off or perhaps you get a cohort of them and you try and brainstorm as to ways to solve some of the real-world problems that are affecting us every day. Got it. Uh, one thing I can see is that you're currently doing a lot of reading on artificial intelligence are you evaluating artificial intelligence in the patient experience right now, just keeping tabs on it, working on any projects on it right now? Yeah, in fact, we have uh, several projects in play uh, using artificial intelligence. Uh, one that we're, um, well, there's several that we're excited about. Um, there's probably gonna be a big announcement, uh, so I can't really talk about the specifics of it. I know you want to, but it's gonna be a big announcement, I think, at HIMSS 
uh, in early March about one of these projects, uh, and we're, we're, we have a couple other national um, companies that uh, are working with us on it. But the answer is, yeah, we've had uh, we we are actually we've actually built a lot of our own AI capabilities here at Oshner. Uh, we're using that today actively uh, today in terms of patient care, uh, and it's already having an impact in terms of potentially lives saved. Uh, we're also using AI in the business of um, delivery, healthcare delivery, and and we know that that's already having an impact in terms of improving the efficiency of the business. So the answer is, yeah, we're we're knee deep in it, and we're very excited about it. Um, but I'm going to have to hold off uh, a couple of months before I can tell you some of our, our results. <laughs> it's okay. We don't make, we don't break too many scoops on the uh, healthcare innovators podcast. I might ask for a follow up interview based on the announcement in March. And finally, uh, to wrap up the interview, I want to know more about your upcoming book, Death and Dollars, Solving the Epidemic of Chronic Disease. Uh, I believe it comes out sometimes in, sometime in April of next year. Can you tell our audience why you wanted to write the book, who should read it, and where they can pre-order the book? Um, so I wanted to write the book because of the elephant in the room, and we sort of addressed it earlier, and that is, um, you know, the epidemic of our century, of our time today is chronic disease. That is the epidemic that's, that, from a healthcare perspective, that's uh, impacting the world. It's 70% of all the deaths in the United States today are due to chronic diseases. Uh, it, and as I mentioned, it's 86% of all the dollars we spend in healthcare. So that's where the death and dollars come from. It's the majority of the deaths and the majority of the dollars that we spend in healthcare. So there's a lot of things that we can do, and they're all important things that we can do in healthcare. But at the end of the day, the biggest thing that we could do is the is the elephant in the room, and it's chronic disease. And we haven't modified how we manage it or deliver care for it or improve upon it in decades, uh, really since its inception. So uh, what I talk about is the issues surrounding chronic disease care today across the globe and ways that we can fix it, ways that we can make patients' lives better, make their experience of care better, prolong their lives, all in a way that ultimately reduces the cost of care and improves outcomes. Uh, and that's really the, the, the purpose of writing the book. Yeah. And at a high level, I mean, who do you think is going to lead the charge? I mean, you have would seem to be more conversation from patients, consumers, people in the health system, and you know dissatisfaction in the way uh, healthcare economics are working today. You have payers, and you have consolidation with that industry, and then you have uh, professionals like yourself working with health systems and looking to move transformation. Who do you think are going to be the first movers in delivering that transformation or facilitating that awareness that we need to begin working on chronic disease? Or do you think it's some combination of the three? I think it's ultimately the delivery system. At the end of the day, payers can only do so much. I mean, at the end of the day, all they do is they move the money around, but they're not delivering care. And this is about delivering care in a different way. So if we're talking about how we can efficiently deliver care, it's going to have to be coming from the delivery system side. That's number one. Uh, number two is the impetus to change is it just takes one of us or two of us to be able to prove the model. And once the model's there and it's showing benefits, uh, the benefits accrue, the, 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 who wins? Let's just start there. Who wins in this? I don't want to say it's a game because it's not a game, but who wins in the process? At the end of the day, the most important person that wins is the individual. Because now I'm not going to get the stroke or I'm not going to get the heart attack or I'm not going to die prematurely. So that's the biggest winner. The second biggest winner 
and this is not why we're doing it, but it just happens to be, is that if I don't have the heart attack or stroke, guess what? It costs less to, to take care of that person. And so the second biggest winner is the payer. So once you prove the model and you show that patients, and, and are, are, they, they love it, and they do. They're highly satisfied with it, and they're getting better outcomes. The payers will all rush to the table because their motivation is money. Um, and, and so if it costs less to manage a population of 50,000, 100,000 people doing it this way, and that, then they're going to rush to it because that's their prime motivation. So I think that this is one of those things where it'll rapidly build on itself, and there'll be a, a big rush to the table. Uh, but at the end of the day, the, the people that are going to be doing the transformation that are going to be creating this innovation will be the delivery systems. Got it. And to go back to the details on the book, uh, can you tell us when the book will be released and if we can pre-order it or not? Yeah, I'm, uh, the book should be released uh, March, April, as you pointed out. Uh, it's available for pre-order on Amazon, uh, so you can order it as a as a either as an ebook or as obviously a, a, a paper book. Um, in real time, and and I think if you just looked up death in dollars, um, you'll you'll find it quite easily on a Google search. Well, Dr. Milani, thanks for taking the time with us today with the Healthcare Innovators Podcast Series. Have a great day. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Healthcare Innovators Podcast. Subscribe today at datica.com.